We're in the first chapter, haven't got far. And we paused because uh, there is a very important cultural issue um, that we have been focusing on. And the past few weeks, the question has been this. Um, As a Christian, what do I say to the challenges that are being presented in defence of the normalisation of homosexuality within our society. That's what we've been focusing on for the past few weeks, if you haven't been with us. And again, I've got to say some things, uh, I've got to repeat some things that I've said each week, so um, you that have been here every week, um, you won't forget it. But um, here's the truth. The world is rapidly being convinced that, the normali- that this normalization is indeed the right thing. Isn't that right? And again, as I pointed out in previous weeks, there is an appeal to the thinking of people in society that homosexual orientation is a genetic thing and that it is supported by science, which we have seen each week, we have seen and recognised that it is not. Now, I was watching, did anybody see... Oh, I don't know what night it was. It was one of those current affair programs that I don't know why I watched them. But this time I was happy that I watched it because the subject was, again, the normalisation of homosexuality within our society. And did anybody see it? I can't remember what channel it was. Um, uh, there was a pastor, I believe, doesn't matter where he was from, he was being interviewed and there was another church leader who was also being interviewed, but the pastor that was being interviewed about the church's position on homosexuality was rock solid. It was rock solid. The guy was just doing the best, the best uh, that you know I believe we can possibly do. But then, and here's where this subtle thing is happening. I was looking for a big word there and I came out with thing. Here's where this subtle thing is happening. Then the interviewer said, looked at this pastor after listening to him graciously, said, but surely how can you and how can the church hold on to this position any longer when science has proved that homosexuality is biological? The statement was said You know, it was boldly said, and the pastor said, well, I haven't read those reports. And then they cut him off, right? And then they went to this other... See, I'm reticent to call him a pastor because a pastor is a shepherd of the flock. He's someone who feeds the flock and someone who keeps the flock. So they went to this other representative who said exactly opposite to what the pastor had said and gave the other guy all the more time. But you know what? The powerful statement, sadly, was not what the pastor had said, not even what this other person who was affirming homosexuality in the church said. The powerful statement that was said was the lie, and that was that science has proven, has proven that it is biological which it has not. Science has attempted, and there have been many studies, and again, I encourage you to to seek them out, but to seek them out and to read them very, very carefully because there is 
a generalized statement that these studies suggest a biological connection. And if you go in with that presupposition, then that's a conclusion you're going to come out with. I listened to another guy the other day who was talking on the same subject. He was talking about the biological evidences. And I've talked about these, I know, in the first week. But he talked about the studies that have been carried out in, in defense of the biological connection for homosexuality. And he was giving all of this genetic information out. He was very, either he was very intelligent. He knew a lot of big words. I don't know. But he was saying a lot of genetic information. And he was saying it loudly. He was saying excitedly. He was saying as a positive fact. And he was, he, was a, he was a young guy. And he was up and down like this. He was moving backwards and forwards like I am. And he come to the end of his dissertation. He got to the end. And then his voice dropped down. I don't know. About half, to half the level. And he quietly said. But the same things have been found in heterosexual males as well. You know. He had to say that because that's the truth, you know. So the fellow that I saw who did a great job, but what the, what the interviewer did and what they did with their editing is a classic example of what has been presented to this world, to us every single day. And that is that homosexuality has a biological basis. Um, they say a person is born gay. And to have any other opinion is to be nothing but bigoted. And more often than not, they add to that word bigoted, hateful. Now, we've talked about the reality of hate and that it's not in the church. I know there are some misguided people who say foolish things, but the Christian heart, the heart of Christ, the heart of God is for love, isn't it? It's to love all sinners. But here's the thing. Because of this successful normalization, both outside and inside the church, what we are seeing now as Christians is that there is more and more revisionist-like scholars that are attempting to show that the Bible does not indeed prohibit homosexuality, which of course it clearly, clearly does. And we've seen that week in and week out. And so what we've been doing, if you are here this morning for the first time, looking at some common defences are given against the biblical position of homosexuality and how do we respond? How, what do we say? You know, one of them, one of the ones that is held up more, very commonly, is the fact that Jesus never dealt with homosexuality. He never directly addressed homosexuality. That's a lie. He did, and we looked at that. And the other is that the New Testament scriptures, they say, well, there's only, there's only half a dozen verses in the entire Bible that speak directly to homosexuality. Well, that's not true. That's just not true. You know, there are, there are half a dozen verses that use that terminology, but what we have to understand and realize that every time the Bible talks about sexuality and immorality, it's addressing the subject. Every time the Bible talks about marriage, it's addressing the subject. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses dealing with human sexuality that we have to read and understand in order to come to a final conclusion about what God thinks on these things. Do you get that? 
And we're going to understand that and we're going to believe that because that is the truth. So the other thing, question that we dealt with that people often throw at Christians is that the New Testament scriptures that are condemning homosexuality, it intrigues me that they never refer to the Old Testament scriptures because they can't argue against the frank nature of them. But they say the New Testament scriptures that are condemning homosexuality as read in our Bible, they say are mistranslated. And so what your Bible is saying is not a correct interpretation. And because they are mistranslated, then all of us with a traditional view on homosexuality are misinformed or misunderstand what, is, what God really means. And again, we dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we looked at um, the idea that we as Christians are hypocritical in our consistency to the use of the Bible. There are... There are a, a, often charges laid at the feet of the Christian saying that we pick and choose. And that is that we pick and choose what we want to stand for and what we want to stand against. And so these are the common challenges that are thrown at us. Now, each week I have stressed, and this is where I need to repeat myself, each week I have stressed that despite the message to normalise homosexuality in our world, the question for us is, what do I as a believer say to that message that is before my face every single day? It's before our ears every single day. What do I say to that message? Well, the very first thing to understand is that we cannot buy into it, can we, as Christians? We cannot allow ourselves to be influenced by it. We need to understand that we cannot truly... And this next statement that I say, in effect, really is my entire message this morning. So I'm probably going to waste half an hour of your time saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, I'm asking for forgiveness in advance. But we need to understand, and I've said this each week, that we cannot truly love those who identify as homosexuals without believing and being honest with them that such a chosen lifestyle is indeed sin. We can't love them if we're pussyfooting around with it. Because what? Because sin separates us from God. Remember again what Paul said at the beginning of this whole passage. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power, and that's the important thing. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God that changes a person's life. And he launches it, this whole, whole passage by saying, I'm not ashamed of the power of God, you know. And so we must unashamedly, Christians, be proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of salvation. What? From sin. It's the good news of salvation from sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The reality is this. All have sinned. Is that not right? Isn't that what Romans chapter 3 tells us? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But there is mercy. This is why we worship him. This is why we adore him. This is why we surrender our lives to him. There is mercy and forgiveness to be found through Jesus Christ. So to tiptoe around pretending that homosexuality is not sin, that is not loving at all. That's hate. That's what that is. It's hating souls that God loves and that God's spirit desires to woo unto himself. But at the same time, you and I, we need to realize that we need to experience, or they, sorry, need to experience the love of Christ through the people of Christ. Again, I've said this each week, just as you and I did. 
so we can accept the person. We've got that cliche saying, you know, what is it? Love the sinner, hate the sin. It sort of rolls off, you know, it rolls off our tongues as we turn our back on this this portion of our society and pretend they're not there. You know, I don't want to be critical, but that's where we've dropped the ball. We, we, we really, really have, you know. We must realise that. We must understand that. We can accept the person without approving of their choice to live a same-sex relationship. But the problem is the homosexual wants us to accept that they were born that way. And I know I've already hit on this and I keep hitting on this. To accept that they were born that way. Well, here's the thing we were all born with sin, weren't we? We were all born with a sin nature. We all naturally lean towards sin. The Bible says something about our heart, doesn't it? The Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things, it is desperately wicked in Jeremiah chapter 17. That's what the Bible says. According to the Bible, homosexuality is just one among so many sins that the natural heart of the fallen man gravitates towards. So some will struggle with lying. Some will struggle with what? Do you you want to give me a list? (laughs) Do you want to make some confession here and now about the things that we struggle with? Gossip, jealousy, stealing, adultery, lust, pornography. And some struggle with homosexuality. But just because a person struggles with same-sex addiction does not mean that God made them that way. It doesn't mean that any more than the person who is struggling with anger means that God made them kill somebody. You have a choice about what you do with your temptations. We all do. A person may not choose homosexual desires, but we choose what we do with our desires. Homosexual temptation, again, may not be a choice, but homosexual behaviour is. That's how the Bible deals with it. Just in the same way that lustful heterosexual desires may not be a choice but adulterous behavior is isn't it the bible speaks about the sinful desires and where they will take us and probably nowhere clearer than in james i love james because he just shoots from the hip it is what it is he says and why argue with it He says in chapter 1 and verse 14 of his epistle, but each one of you is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. Then when desire has conceived, what does it do? It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, what does it do? It brings forth forth death. So again, we can accept the person without approving of their choice to be in a same-sex relationship. We love them. We deepen our relationships with them. We affirm that they are, and this is so important, we affirm that they are not born that way. No, 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 we don't affirm that, but we affirm that they are not perverted. We affirm that they are not deviant characters. That's what they want to say that you are saying about them. That they are deviant characters. None of us are saying that, right? The church is not saying that again. 
We've got to take it if we're responsible for it. Again, parts of the church do run around with placards and they do lift them up and they do say that God hates and this. And we talked about this the other week, so I'm, not, I'm wasting too much of your time. <laughs> we affirm that they are not deviant, that they are not perverted characters. They are loved and they are created by God in his image. See, as Christians, we know that Jesus loves and died for everyone who has been given the breath of life. Isn't that right? Everyone. Everyone. But here's the thing. Everyone needs to hear truth. Thankful, Marty, Martin, for your prayer. But everyone needs to hear truth regardless of how they choose to receive it. Ours as the body of Christ is to give the truth in love, is to give the truth in humility. But nevertheless, we give the truth. We give the truth. We come to Christ as we are. Isn't that right? It's another one of the cliches. But it's truth. We come to Christ as we are, but that does not mean that we stay as we are. And that includes those who experience same-sex attraction. God can and does deliver us from all manner of sin. And church, we cannot be silent because we are scared of offending people or upsetting people. We cannot be silent. You cannot be silent. You cannot be silent because they may not like or they may not accept what you tell them about what God says. So we must hold, the whole point of this is, we as the church must hold fast to our biblical convictions. But at the same time, at the same time, understand, we don't fix anybody. You and I, we don't fix Anybody, but rather, as I've said each week, we point them to the one who does, who fixes us all. We love them, we are friends with them, we will journey with them, never compromise, always loving, knowing that it is God, by the power of the gospel, is the one that changes us, that changes lives. And again, we may not be, we please do not be about winning arguments. That's not what we're about, but rather about being equipped and having the confidence. This is what I want us to come away from these few weeks together, is that we are equipped and that we are confident to know what is the mind of God on this subject, that we really have that confidence. It's not about... It's not about taking a battle stance and just firing off information at the homosexuals. But it's, it's, but it's about not being afraid to engage with people knowing that God's heart and love is towards all mankind. It's knowing that. So yes, there has been a seismic shift. 
in our society's sensibilities to this subject. Yes, there has. But despite the shift of society's sensibilities, you and I have to know and we must be settled and we must be grounded on, we must stand upon, we must speak from the truth with confidence that God has not changed. And God never will change. So if we're going to make this journey with these people, if we're going to put our hands up and say, God, use me. Use me to love this part of our society whom you love. If we're going to be a part of that journey, then we're going to have to realise that we are going to be confronted by hard questions. Hard questions. And so the question remains, end of introduction, what do I say? Now, this morning, I'm, as I said, I'm finishing up on this, and I won't keep you long with this because we've been alluding to this all the way through to this question. And this is not so much what do I say to them, but what do I say to my own heart about this question? You know what the question is? You've heard it said, it's on T-shirts, it's everywhere, it's love is, love is, love, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? What do we say to that? Here's the position. You can think what you want to think, Christian. You can read what you want to read, Christian. You can believe, Christian, whatever you want to believe. But what you cannot do is question the love that I have for this person. Why? Because love is love, is love. Love, they say, trumps everything. What do I say to that? What do I say to that? Can I read a letter to you? Actually, it's a blog that I read during the week. What do I say to Amber Leventry? Now, none of you know who Amber Leventry is, but she is a, a, a lesbian bloggist who speaks about this subject. This is what she says. She says, Dear Christian, love is a funny thing. You can't conjure it or choose the object of its desire, but you can embrace it. You can, also, you can also allow it to be, to just exist without fearing it or letting it threaten the way in which your heart and mind work. Love is kindness. Love is acceptance. Love is letting vulnerability be your guide to happiness. Yet... It is also the reason for hate. The love of Jesus, the love of the Bible, and the love of your children seem to be motivated to spread your displeasure at our happiness, to speak with disgust on your tongue, and to celebrate our discrimination. It seems as though the strength of your love is dependent upon the amount of judgment, the amount of disagreement you hold for homosexuality for people like me. Some say your definition of love shakes mine. Some days it makes me hurt. Some days it makes me angry. But mostly it makes me sad. It makes me sad for you, Christian. Your love is keeping you and your kids from knowing some amazing LGBTQ men and women and those who identify as something in between. Your love is keeping kids in the closet, those you don't know and those who live under your roof. Love is not protecting them, but being exposed 
your love is not protecting them from being exposed to gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender people. It is teaching them to fear it. You will push away even your own children, she says. My love, now she talks about her love, my love and that of my community, the homosexual community, however, will take anyone in and love them wholly. Well, that's a lie. Without judgment or expectation, they can never meet. That's a lie. The children we are raising will do too. We may protect our kids in different ways, but we always teach them to be kind and respectful to everyone, no matter the unpredictable way the heart falls in love and no matter if the love was once a mask for something less than noble. That's the difference between you and me, Christian. I am not threatened by love. I am strengthened by it. And I will proudly spew my desires for equal rights by advocating the gay agenda all over the place because you are right, Christian. I am trying to normalise love, the very thing that separates us. How did that sound? What do I say when someone like Amber not only says that love is love is love, but the love that I have makes yours, Christian, look like hate. Because that's what she was saying. So often, the re this reasoning has Christians stuck with no way of, of extraditing themselves from what seems like a perfectly humane truth. Love is love. Jesus calls us to love. So to deny their love must be, must be hate. What do I say to this? How do I respond to this? Well, let me ask a question. Are you loving someone when you validate every decision they make? Are you loving someone when you applaud them for just being themselves. I, I ask these questions because the average person out there thinks of loving in terms of somebody who makes me feel good, who accepts me. They make me feel good because they accept me, because they praise and they compliment me, because they honour me for who I am. That's someone who loves me. We've got these cliche statements again. I saw that cliche this morning. But we've got these cliche statements. I love him because he gets me. Or I know, I know, I know he loves me because he gets me. Do you hear this? And so our concept of love is governed by the notion that it is, as one Bible commentator put it, unconditional acceptance. Now, you say that, unconditional acceptance. You go, unconditional, oh, that's a Christian word. But you know what? That word is never, ever connected to acceptance in the Scriptures. Unconditional acceptance, even in God's acceptance towards you. Those two words are never, never, ever, ever tethered together. 
See, now I've said all this and I don't know, some of you may be thinking, well, maybe that sounds okay. You know, that sounds good. That sounds safe. Love is unconditional acceptance. I am what I am. And you love me. Doesn't it give you all the warm fuzzies, you know? You're amazing just the way you are. You're amazing just the way you are. Ah, they're the words of love. That true love is. But are they really? You're amazing just the way you are. Is that what God says? Is that what God's really all about? Well, Jesus was asked the question, what is the chief or what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember that? The religious leaders came to him and they asked him, actually, Matthew 22, let me read it to you. In verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened unto it, Jesus said, that you shall also love one another. By this he... Sorry, sorry, I'm I'm jumping the next verse. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. In these two commandments are all the law and the prophets. And the verse that I just masterfully wove into that last verse is, of course, John 13, where Jesus said to the disciples and that last night when they were in the upper room together before his arrest and crucifixion, he said, a new commandment I give to you. This is the last commandment he gave them. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He says, by this we'll all know that you are my disciples How if you have loved one for another? And of course, the quintessential statement, I believe, comes from John in his first epistle in chapter 4 and verse 8, when he says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now you stop and you think about that for a moment. God is love. He loves us. He has commanded us to love him and to love each other. Now, how does the cultural love concept that I spoke about before of unconditional acceptance, how does that subject itself to the authority of God's word to love one another? Now, you might not have heard the question clearly, but it's an important question because the average person out there hearing us Christians saying that God is love immediately relates that through the warm, fuzzy concept of the love, of their love, which God has towards, which they believe is, is the right love, unconditional acceptance, which means... All these words about God's love and all these commands for us to love, acknowledging that God is love, you filter that through the warm, fuzzy, fuzzy concept in our society, you come up with, guess what? God accepts everybody just the way they are. Just the way they are. God is not a God who judges people. God doesn't judge me. How many times have had, you had that conversation with someone who denies the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ's atoning blood? How many times have you had conversations with people that you say to them, you need to be forgiven of your sin? God doesn't see me as a sinner. If God's there, he loves me. God is a God of love. Just look at my heart. 
kind. I'm considerate. I'm a good person. God is love. God doesn't have to or God doesn't want people to change. God knows that every single person that I've ever slept with is someone I love. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and the great, greatest commandment And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. When he said that, you know what he was referring to? He was referring to the Decalogue. You know what the Decalogue is? It's the Ten Commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is encompassing the first four of the Ten Commandments in my relationship towards God. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself which is referring to commandments 5 through 10, which is referring to my relationship with you, with with one another, with my fellow man. You know what they are? They are God's commandments to govern my morality. They have nothing to do with my personal sensitivities. They're God's government, they're God's commandments to govern my morality. And then after that, we read verse after verse after verse. Please stay with me. We read verse after verse after verse that talks about the greatest expression of God's love. Where would you find it? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever would believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We can go to Romans chapter 5 and we will get there in weeks ahead. Verse 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us. Please note that. And we can go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. Again, please stop and think about what I've said. God didn't send his son to die upon a cross for humanity because he loved us just the way we are. He didn't, did he? No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sons of disobedience. We were sons and daughters who by our very nature were children of wrath. We were without hope. We were on our way to hell. Something else you're not allowed to say today. That was Ephesians, by the way, I was referring to. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, opening verses. What does that chapter say about our or about God's love for us. Can I read some of it to you? It says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his what? His great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. Paul couldn't hold it out. He had to say it. By grace we've been saved. And we have been raised up 
together and made he has made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kingdom towards us in Christ Jesus you see love real love biblical love God's love does not simply mean or simply expressed in that someone we praise, someone we compliment, someone we honour as who they are. It doesn't mean an acceptance, even this whole thing we hear it all the time, of your true self. You know, love's not just about making people feel good about themselves the way that they are. No, love. The love of God. Have you read the verses with me? Have you heard what's being said? What God has been saying? The love of God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. The love of God sacrificed. Heaven gave all that it possibly could. He gave everything that it possibly could in order that you and I would be accepted as we are. No. See, that's the lie. That's the lie. All of that happened not so simply everybody can find their true selves and be accepted as they truly are. But all of that happened. God paid that immeasurable price so that you and I can know the greatest benefit of God's blessing upon our lives. That's to know God. To know Him. But beyond that, in knowing Him, we are therefore transformed into his image we get saved and we are changed what does the bible tell us in corinthians from two corinthians from glory to glory there's a transformation paul using that word metamorphosis that is taking place that gradual process as we behold him we are transformed into his image that's why god paid that price That's why God loved us so much. To experience. Did you hear it in Ephesians? Again, this is what Shenny was talking about. To experience, yes, his every blessing. But beyond that, his eternal riches towards us. You you, you think you're blessed to God? Well, you are. But you wait till you get to glory. You wait till you get to glory. It's not about sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It's none of that rubbish. It's about experiencing the eternal blessing of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. That's what it's going to be. It's continually being unfolded every single, I can't say day because there will be no time, but every single, I'm stuck, aren't I? Moment of existence. In the presence of God, you are going to be overwhelmed by the enormity of his love towards you and the power of his grace that is and always will be here and throughout all eternity will be working in you. That's the ultimate good. That's the ultimate treasure that any human being can ever know. But the world's concept of love is about self. How shallow does that sound? Finding self. This is what the homosexual movement's all about. 
It's finding self and lifting self up as the ultimate treasure of life. You hear this sort of thing said all the time. It's only in the discovery of my true self will I know the meaning of life. Will I know the riches of what it is to be me? And you Christians with your bigoted hate, you just want me not to discover my true me. Let me tell you, and I think you know this, the true you outside of Christ? No, you're right, Jim. It will never satisfy you. You can never be satisfied by lifting yourself up. Why? Because we were not created to glory in ourselves. We were created to glory in Jesus Christ. God's design, please hear this. God's design for your heart, your mind, your soul, your sexuality, everything about you and all of your affections and all of your desires is to be satisfied in him. That's God's purpose. It's his design. It's his purpose for life. Love is love is love is an attempt to try and redesign the creative purpose of God in people's lives. That's what they're trying to do. Love, I'll say it again. And I might be done, I think. I don't know. But love is not just affirming someone. Love will give. This is us now. Love will give. Love will suffer. Love will be willing to be called a bigot. Love will be willing to be vilified. Love will be willing to be called someone that is a hater. Love will speak the truth of God regardless of all of that. They say love is love and we should affirm that love. No, no, no. No, no, no. So the question is out there, isn't it? Why? But we don't understand why the church says homosexuality is wrong. That's the question now. It's about love, is it? Isn't it? It's about love. And you Christians are all about love, aren't you? They have no concept of what true love is. That's what I want you to understand this morning. And just because somebody says they love something doesn't mean it's truly loving. See, I have really resisted the urge to go down the path of saying, well, if love is love is love, and we have to accept that about the homosexual reality being normalised in our society, then I can choose to love whatever I want to love and you have to accept it. Well, I love your dog, man. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You know, every time a Christian, there was one, uh, one um, I think it was an American politician, was making some statement about, well, does that mean that uh, a man who's... You see, the, the homosexuality, they say, it is my... What's the word for it? I've lost. Uh, what is that word? 
Oh, my brain stopped. All of those words will do. I'm born that way. So what do we say to the middle-aged man who feels attracted to young kids? So you're not allowed to say that. And I think there was an American politician who did dare to say that. Boy, did he get vilified. Boy, did he get torn to pieces. And do we? You know, see, but that's the reality of the position. Love is love is love. And yes, I have seen someone get married to their cat. You know, because they don't like humans. But their cat, oh. Ultimately, that's where it goes. Um, are you good with this? Do you think we've done it? Okay. So at the end of the day, the letter we read that says their love is love and our love is hatred, unconditional acceptance that our culture calls for, it's not love at all. It's hating their souls because it's denying God's designed purpose for all of humanity. You know, this, this verse in, in uh, Corinthians is held up all the time. The one that, what's his name, Falau got in trouble for, you know, um, where it says that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunken, revelers, extortioners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, whether you agree with the way he did it or not, um, the truth remains. Is it loving not to warn somebody about that? No, it is not loving. That is hatred. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Brothers and sisters, go out and share the gospel of God's love to all men. Amen? Amen. All right. I've probably kept you way too long. I wanted to finish that because we're going to head off into the second chapter of Romans. If anybody has any questions, if anybody is upset by anything I've said, hey, please, let's have a chat about it. Um, I want to tell you I have had the best feedback over the last few weeks. The best feedback on this subject because I believe that the church is not equipped. We do not have the confidence to be able to engage our society. We do not have the understanding of what God's true heart in this situation is. And we are conflicted and we are confused by everybody's opinion out there. You've got to forget all of those opinions. Let's get back to what God says. And the heart of God says, we love. We love, but we don't accept. And God has a purpose. God is not willing that any should perish. Is that not right? Salvation is for all. Sorry.